0: Hello, and welcome to PW's LibCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of both fiction and nonfiction works. I'm Lenny Picker, and today I'm speaking with author John Pavlovitz, whose latest book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, is being published by Westminster John Knox Press, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good afternoon, John.
1: Good afternoon, Lenny. So good to be with you.
0: Could you start us off by reading a brief excerpt from your book?
1: I would love to. Thank you. I'm a jerk, and so are you. Not always, of course, but sometimes. And that sometimes is what we want to pay close attention to if a loving expression of our personal and collective spirituality really matters to us and we're truly burdened to alleviate the damage in the world and not contribute to it. In order to better do that, it might be helpful to define our terms before going any further and answer the elemental question, So what's a jerk anyway? This may not be as simple as we imagine. In 1964, in a case deciding the nature of pornography, Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart remarked that although defining obscenity was a challenge, recognizing it was not. He famously declared with unintended hilarity, I know it when I see it. When it comes to the jerks in our lives, we can usually spot them without much difficulty, even if specifying their defining qualities proves difficult. And with a little thoughtful reflection or sincere prayer, we can surely recognize the jerkiness in ourselves. Sit back and review the day you've had, for example, and I bet you can recognize it without much effort. You know when either on social media or at home or at your job, you've set out to hurt another human being and succeeded. Congratulations, you're a jerk. Generally speaking, it isn't necessarily our particular theological worldview, political perspective, or personal opinion that is problematic, but the manner in which we wield them and our purpose for wielding them the way that we do. It isn't always the message, sometimes it's the heart of the messenger. We often imagine that being a loving person means never causing injury or initiating conflict, but it's more complicated and subtle than that. In this life, you've surely hurt other people, and you've done so in one of two ways. Either you've accidentally damaged someone by saying or doing something that you weren't aware was offensive or painful to them, or you've intentionally wounded them because that was either partially or fully what you were trying to do from the beginning. In the former case, you are human, and in the latter case, you are a jerk, and oftentimes you're the only one who knows the truth. The first instance requires self-awareness and honesty to repair the damage, while the second necessitates repentance and a severe attitude adjustment, and that's a much taller order. All that to say that as we incarnate our belief systems and make the theoretical tangible, motives matter. In relationships with other people, we will cause inadvertent pain through ineloquence, privilege, carelessness, haste, or arrogance, and those wounds can't be dismissed and need to be reckoned with. We can't just ignore the collateral damage of our words and actions simply because we didn't mean to hurt someone or didn't know better. But there is something far more toxic in desiring to inflict trauma, especially if we do so while simultaneously claiming righteousness in the process.
0: Thank you, John. Could you relate that passage to the overall themes of your book? Well, I I've been in ministry as a
1: local church pastor for most of the past 25 years and for me uh, there was a, a over the past couple of years really looking around and seeing the condition of our world and realizing that so much of the hatred and the bigotry and the fear that I was seeing was coming from largely professed Christians. And so The book is an effort to try and figure out why is that the case? Why is something that is supposedly built on the ideas of love and mercy and compassion and generosity, why does it so often turn toxic? And so the idea of God is love, the heart of it is really that faith should make you a more empathetic human being, whatever that faith is, or it's really largely a waste of time and a missing of the point.
0: So why is it that in so many cases it doesn't make people better? Well, I think there's a
1: tribalism that is built into, especially into the sort of evangelical Christianity that's practiced in America that really requires an adversary. It really requires an enemy, someone to be feared and someone to leverage um, that fervor against. And so I think much of... Uh, our Christianity in America really wires us to um, inside and outside and to be places where exclusion is actually practiced more easily than inclusion. And so I think that's a, a much of it. And it's that the political parts of our lives begin to bleed over into that. And so our belief systems and the legislation we support start to become reflections of, uh, a, of a faith that's really built, on um, keeping people on the periphery
0: so as you said you've been a pastor for i think almost three decades so you're seeing a difference in degree not just in kind in recent years which is prompted you to write the book now as opposed to 10 years ago is that right well, it's
1: been sort of an accruing a of stories over the last few decades. But I think what we've seen in our political uh, environment over the past five or six years has been a, a much more explicit expression of that sort of hostile, um, venomous religion. And so I think much more now, and the, the pandemic has exacerbated that idea of fear and of lack that we see so much of. And for me, the book, you know, I started writing the book in March of 2020 and it was originally quite a different book, but seeing what was happening, this book is a real time response to the world, to the divisions in our country, uh, to the social unrest, but then filter through the lens of this tension that exists in, in religion, uh, love or fear, which one is going to win in our
0: hearts, so to speak. So you just mentioned that originally the book had a different orientation, different theme, different emphasis. Could you tell us what that book would have looked like in an alternate universe? Yeah, I I think it would have been a little bit...
1: it was written sort of from 30,000 feet. It was trying to, to like, diagnose this toxic Christianity, and it was a little bit more of an authoritative sort of how-to. But what it became was a much more on-the-ground, in-the-trenches, visceral experience. And especially what I tried to bring to it was this sense of, this isn't something I'm seeing in the world that I see other people struggling with. This idea of reflecting a faith that is supposed to be love. Of this is something that I daily um, have difficulty with, and so I wanted to write it as a, hey, we're in this together, and religious and non-religious people struggle with these same questions. What does it mean to be a decent human being, and how do we uh, show compassion and empathy uh, in the world around
0: us? So if you look at the title of your book, you know, Don't Be a Jerk, this is a negative rather than a positive formulation, So if not, if God is love, you know, be kind, generous, loving, merciful. What is it about that formulation, you know, don't be horrible? Why is that a a better hook for your message than, you know, leading with, you know, be kind?
1: Well, I think, uh, part of it was my, my aspirations for humanity began to be a little bit more pedestrian. So it wasn't, I, I wasn't going to try to convince someone to be loving and sacrificial. I first wanted them to do no harm. And so the idea of not being a jerk, it really, it speaks to the motives, uh, of each of us. So I'm going to, as a writer, I'm going to put some words down or I'm going to say something. Those words are going to be received in a myriad of ways. What's really important and what I can control is my intentions as I put those words together. And so the book really asks people to say, what drives you? What motivates you? And is there a hostility in your expression of faith? Is there a pettiness? Is there a vindictiveness? And so not being a jerk is really a way to say, hey, let's even begin there. And let's not harm other people in the name of religion.
0: And, I mean, that formulation just sort of reminds me of the uh, the way the, uh, the Rabbi Hill would sort of phrase what's referred to as the golden rule, and his phrasing would be, you know, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. So it, again, is the sort of notion, as you say, in going to the doctor's oath of sort of, you know, first doing no harm. So how does one get from internalizing and believing and accepting, okay, you know, every day, you know, that shall not be horrible. How does that get into the habits of daily living and the way people interact with each other.
1: Well, a lot of the book asks people to notice the other stories around you and to see the, the universal grief out there to see the, the struggle that all of us have with fear and to begin to look at people sympathetically and to try to understand or step into their story a little bit to get to know a different experience of, America, or the world, or the church, and then to try and let those stories change you. So in the work that I do, I call myself a collector of stories or a war correspondent. I'm always trying to learn from the people around me, hey, what what has your journey been like? And I think that's a really simple discipline that if we put it in practice, we become more um, open to very different experiences of life. And I think it softens us. And then once that happens, once we get those better stories, we're going to naturally respond with the best of ourselves.
0: Is there something that can be done to sort of better inculcate that mindset when people are younger and perhaps, you know, more open to really living that kind of life?
1: It comes down to exposure, in in my story at least, you know, I got out of a a small town area, got geographically out of where I grew up, and it really expanded my understanding of the world, and because of that, I got not only better stories, but I, I formulated better questions, and I was asking different questions and feeling different prompts, So the earlier I think we can expose children to difference and to diversity and to alternative um, experiences, of the world, it's going to be a natural byproduct that that they become more empathetic human beings. And if they do develop religious worldviews or spiritual feelings, those are going to be expressed in a much different way than if they are raised in a place where there is very little variation. Um, So that's I think that's what we can do.
0: And, I mean, one of the things that, you know, you're quite open about in the book is, you know, you're not putting yourself on a, at a pedestal or sort of, you know, pointing a finger at others. You yourself, like all of us sometimes, uh, act like a jerk. What has been the hardest for you to embody the principles that you articulate in the book?
1: My fight in, in the institutional church was always for more diversity, so the welcoming of outsiders and the humane treatment of LGBTQ human beings or a kindness to Muslims, so that difference. But what became difficult was generating the same compassion for my own sort of tribe. So someone who is a conservative and white and American and who has this hostility, it's almost been most difficult to express compassion for people who seem to have no compassion, ironically. And so I've had to look at the people that I grew up with and the churches that I was serving in and, and not hold hostility toward them for what I think they should know or how they should express that. And that's been the greatest learning for me is looking, not only are there stories of people who are different geographically or racially, um, but the, the people who I thought I had a lot in common with, they're not stereotypes either. They haven't become caricatures. They are fully formed human beings with valid stories. And that's the hardest thing to remember across that political and
0: religious divide. And as you were involved in the process of, of taking these thoughts and these stories and putting them into book form, what was the hardest part of doing that? I think it's it's trying
1: to choose... Trying to have an economy with words and say, what what are the stories that are I'm going to largely reach the people who I'm hoping to reach with this book? Or what can I, how can I convey these universal truths in as brief a, a space as possible? And so doing the work I do, I mean, it's every day collecting these stories and almost you have this abundance of riches. And then the, the, so that becomes the difficult thing in finding the stories that you think are going to do the most in the least amount of space.
0: So, I mean, it's interesting, the timing of our talk, as we're just a few weeks away from the Jewish New Year, and I, I'm I'm Jewish. And the, the quote you chose, you know, sort of differentiated between doing something where it may be unintentional, you may be unaware that you've actually acted like a jerk towards someone, and those situations where you either did it intentionally or you realized after acting in a certain way that you did hurt someone. And what I've tried to discuss with my kids, because, you know, traditionally for for the Jewish New Year for Rosh Hashanah, you're supposed to make amends uh, with your fellow human beings. And it's not something that can be absolved by prayers. You have to make, you have to repent. And what I try to tell them is to start with things that are a little more realistic, even if they're harder, which is to say, everyone in my family at one point or another has done something hurtful or insensitive to anyone else. So as opposed to sort of going through, uh, you know, the motions of people who you sort of know casually and sort of paying lip service to the notion of, oh, if I did anything to offend you in the past year, please forgive me, where it becomes almost a formalism to really sort of focus on the hard work of thinking about the past year. And in fact, asking the other person, you know what is it that I've done in the last year that i haven't have it atoned for, so I'm wondering if any of that from my tradition resonates with the the message of your book
1: oh most certainly, and because you know normal in normal times pre pandemic I travel all the time collecting these stories and now i'm I'm traveling virtually and the stories are strikingly similar the the relational collateral damage of this time in our history is incredible, and so it's it's those the close and small places that I think we're going to, we're going to do this greatest work. So I tell people the big and the far away are always going to overwhelm you, but we have a great deal Of agency and influence right where we are. And it's often those people that we're closest to where we do the greatest damage, where we are least likely to be a learner of stories. And so um, I think that is a fantastic um, synergy there with just saying who's around me and who do I know well, because those are usually the people I'm able to hurt the easiest
0: Thank you for your time today, John. Thank you, listeners. Uh, the book, again, is If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk by John Pavlowitz, published by Westminster John Knox Press. Please join us again soon for the next LitCast.